I'd like to welcome you all to Sunday service here at Ananda Village. I am Nayaswami Parvati. This is Nayaswami Gandev, and we're very happy to be with you today and happy to have all of you here. I will be reading from Rays of the One Light by Swami Kriyananda. These are based on Paramhansa Yogananda's teachings, commentaries on the Bible and the Bhagavad Gita. Perfection is self-transcendence. Truth is one and eternal. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. The following commentary is based on the teachings of Paramhansa Yogananda. We begin this week with a passage from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 5. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you. And pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. If ye love them which love you, what reward have ye, have ye? Do not even the tax collectors the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even pagans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. This teaching is a continuation of last week's lesson. To love all equally is possible only by seeing God everywhere, in others as well as in oneself. See whatever comes to you unasked for as a manifestation of his will. Be grateful for the pains you experience, for they are healing strokes of his love. Sometimes healing is affected only by strong measures, but his love for you is manifested in the very attempt to heal. Strive always to be impersonal, as though whatever happens to you were happening to someone else. Persecution gives us a supreme opportunity to deny the thought, this is happening to me, and to affirm our inner freedom from the thought of ego. Don't allow the negative perceptions of others to become your own self-definition. Seek God. This is the true goal of life, though how difficult to cling to in the midst of hatred, spite, and persecution. The Bhagavad Gita tells us in the seventh chapter, out of thousands, one strives for spiritual attainment. And out of many blessed true seekers who strive assiduously to reach me, one perhaps perceives me as I am. O truth seeker, be one among those thousands who seeks the supreme goal. Thus, through Holy Scripture, God has spoken to mankind. Oh, oh, oh. It's been uh, wonderful these last few weeks to have some of our leaders from Ananda India with us, Nayaswami Jaya, Nayaswami Devarshi, Nayaswami Dhyana, and today 
One of our leaders from Ananda Europa, Swami Kirtani. Wonderful to have you here. I'd like to share a selection from Whispers from Eternity, Paramahansa Yogananda's book of poems and prayers. Actually, he didn't really like the word prayer very much. He felt that too many people have let it become beggary. And he preferred the term loving demand. He said that we should, we should pray to God with love, but as a, as a righteous demand, like a child to the parent, knowing, knowing that, of course, of course this should come to me. For this is my parent. I'm yours. So uh, this book has many, many such wonderful loving demands. And I'd like to share one with you today that we don't often hear at Sunday service. Um, and I think because it's a little bit too much like what Jesus was saying in today's reading. It's a little hard, a little hard to do. But we have to remember that this is a prayer, a loving demand for the strength to do what Jesus was telling us to do in today's reading. So this is titled, Teach Me to Use Every Dig of Criticism to Bring Myself Nearer to the Fountain of Goodness in Me. Teach me to sport every scar of trials as a medal of thy chastisement, dusky at first, but now shining. Thy sacred hands were the giver, working through thy ever just law. Let therefore every teardrop of sorrow caused by the actions of others wash away some hidden taint in my mind. Let every stroke of the pickaxe of wounding experience dig deeper and deeper into the soul of my understanding. Let every hurtful strike of circumstances into the soil of my comfort bring me nearer to the bubbling well of thy solace in my heart. Let every gash of others' hatred bring forth from me a loving cry for thy love. Let all my trails be antidotes for bitterness, all my trials be antidotes for bitterness to bring healing solace to my soul. Let others' unkindness inspire me to be more beautifully kind. Let their darkness not blind me too, but stimulate me to seek thy light. Let their harsh words remind me to use sweet words always. And let every breeze from stones of evil that are hurled at me intensify my inner fortitude that I bless all with my goodness. Inspire me to be like a jasmine vine which sheds flowers on those who administer axe blows to its roots. May I never fail to shower blossoms of help and forgiveness on all who try to cut me with their wickedness. The pickaxe of wounding experience. <sighs> Let us be galvanized. <laughs> you know, the, uh, 
this is a hard teaching. <laughs> it's like uh, in the Bible, in another portion of the Bible, where Jesus says to his disciples, you know, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And, and the Bible uh, quotes disciples as saying, this is a hard teaching. <laughs> and it uh, goes on to say, and from that time many walked with him no more. And these are not easy things to do. They're not pleasant to contemplate, really. But what is experiencing the unpleasantness, it's the very thing that needs to go. It's the ego, our sense of identification with body and personality, thinking that is who I am. And so it's very, very appropriate that this reading from the Bible got paired with this reading from the Bhagavad Gita. Out of a thousand one seeks me, out of a thousand who seek me, perhaps one knows me as I am. Most people, when they hear of Jesus saying these things, or they hear this whisper from eternity uh, from Paramahansa Yogananda, think, I think I'd like to be part of the 999, uh, not the one who's really going to do the seeking, because after all, uh, look at the odds. It's not just one in a thousand, but even out of that many ones like that, how few, how few reach the goal. The odds are one in many millions. It really does take courage to walk the spiritual path with that level of commitment with that level of determination. That's why I thought it was so lovely that the courage affirmation gets paired with this reading today. It's a, it's a perfect fit. And you know, all the, all the masters experience the drop off from the people who initially come to them to the people who are really going to be in it for the long haul. You know, when Master came to this country in, in 1920, I've, I often just boggle at the thought of him coming in 1920 and what he had to, what he encountered here. And yet he, he started very soon after he came, he started his barnstorming days where he would go throughout the country and give talks in many, many cities, and thousands of people would come. And after those, he would give free talks, free lectures, and then after that, he would stay in the city and give classes to go deeper into the topics. And uh, one time in, in the city of Minneapolis, 5,000 people came to one of his lectures. That's not my picture of the 1920s. In America, my picture is flappers and the Charleston and, and raucous music and gangsters and prohibition futilely trying to hold it all together, but it's really sort of a country that's coming apart at the seams. And yet, thousands of people were going to spiritual classes given by an Indian guru. It's just amazing. And at this 
talk in Minneapolis where 5,000 people came. One of his disciples said to Yogananda, said, Sir, this is marvelous. And Yogananda said calmly, we'll be lucky if even five come to the classes after this. And in fact, that's the exact number that did come to the classes after that 5,000 person event. Out of 1,000, one seeks me. Out of 5,000, five seek me. And this is what the, what the masters have to see, and yet they hold strong. They don't, they don't hold back. Jesus didn't hold back. Jesus had multitudes there too. If you read the, the Sermon on the Mount, which is sort of the Bhagavad Gita of Christianity, really. It's the only place where, where the, Jesus' teachings are really you know, presented in such a body as that. But if you read right before, he was being followed by multitudes, people coming from, from 100 miles away or more. And in those days, 100 miles was a long ways, a long way to travel. And yet, how many? How many stayed with him? Not many. Not many are, are in it for ready to have the, the pickaxe uh, picking at them and, and, and yet stick with it. But this is what the master saw. This is what Jesus saw. This is what all great masters see. And the other 999 certainly are helped in some way, but they're really here for the one. They're really here for the one who, or the ones, who will stay with it to the end. Because the end, what is the end? As the title of the reading today says, it is perfection. It is self-transcendence. It's not making an ever more perfect ego. It is getting out of the ego altogether. And how are we going to do that? How it seems impossible, and you know, it seems like lifting yourself by your own bootstraps. And in fact, that's exactly why it's impossible for the ego to achieve perfection. Egoic perfection is a contradiction in terms. The only ego that's perfect is the ego that has gone away. And how is the ego going to go away? It's going to go away ultimately only by divine grace. We can't make it go away because the tools we use to make it go away are of the ego. It's divine grace alone that can do it. The Bhagavad Gita, Krishna says a number of times that you know, it's only through my grace, speaking as God. It's only as, through my grace that you're going to be able to achieve the ultimate. There's a, a little section in the Mahabharata of which the, the Bhagavad Gita is just the teeniest, tiniest slice. And for those of you who are not familiar with the Mahabharata, I'll just briefly say that it's, a, it's the, the most beloved spiritual epic of the Indian spiritual tradition. And it's the story of conflict between two sets of cousins, 
over a kingdom. It's all allegory, although it's based on actual history. It's very thinly based on history, that really it's a spiritual allegory of our own quest for happiness. And like in any conflict, there are good guys and there are bad guys. And the good guys symbolize our positive qualities, the bad guys our negative qualities, and they're fighting to rule the kingdom, the kingdom of happiness within us. Krishna, God, the guru, is on the side of the good guys. And in this particular part I'd like to highlight just for a very brief moment is one that many people are not so familiar with, but it's, it's after this great war has reached its conclusion, the last bad guy, the main bad guy, has fallen. Uh, he's mortally wounded, but he's still alive, lying on the earth. And the good guys, the five Pandava brothers and Krishna, gather around him, altogether feeling pretty good about what's happened, that the, the war has been won, and the good guys won it. And at one point, the bad guy, because he's still alive and he's a bad guy, uh, pushes himself up, excruciating pain. He says, Krishna, you never would have won if you had fighted fairly. And then he proceeds to cite a number of the instances of this great battle where Krishna had, well, let's face it, cheated on, on behalf of the good guys. He had used his divine powers, or sometimes just a simple uh, scheme of lying, uh, in order to bring this, this victory about. And the good guys, the Pandava brothers, who are very you know, noble characters, they place a lot of value on fairness, just sort of hang their heads in shame, because what happens is as soon as the bad guy said this, flowers from heaven start to rain on him, and celestial voices call out, indeed, the great warriors of the bad guys were indeed slain by unfair means. And the good guys are just there hanging their heads, being like, oh, this is not what it was supposed to be. And Krishna looks at him, he says, listen to me. Those were great warriors you were fighting. Remember our negative qualities. Those were great warriors you were fighting. Even with all your prowess, you never could have defeated them. If I had not used my powers, victory would never have been yours. Don't feel bad about this. When one is greatly outnumbered by his foes, he must triumph by any means possible. Come, let us return to camp and rest. And it's just, and this, is, this is how it's going to end for us, really, or not just end, but get better and better and better, is the grace of the guru, the grace of God, coming in sometimes in the least obvious ways, sometimes in invisible ways, sometimes in highly visible ways. But this is how we're going to get out of this place of 
being identified with, I am my body, I am my personality, I'm the things I've done, I'm my successes, I'm my failures, I'm all of that. It's such a hypnosis. And we, are, we all live in a world that reinforces that hypnosis. It's not just our own negative qualities that we have to contend with. We are living in a drama in which every aspect of it, every visible aspect of it, is designed to reinforce the drama, to reinforce our consciousness of being the body, of being what we've done, of being what people think of us. So how does that grace come? How do we get to the point where we can love our enemies, bless those who curse us, do good to those who hate us? The only way that we can do is to meditate more and more deeply and behave in a way that we would behave if we knew beyond a doubt that we were one with everyone. Because if we were one with everyone, of course we would love our enemies. Of course we would bless those who curse us. Just that's how the masters live, because they knew it. They knew who they were. And what they say to us is, it's OK. I understand that you're not feeling that yet. Just do your best to behave as if you were. Focus on those times when it's easier. What that will do is it begins to open a little channel for God's grace to come. Every time that we align ourselves with how we would act if we knew, every time we act that way anyway, it's like we're beginning to give God an opening, some way to come into our lives. Perhaps it's small, perhaps it's large. Now, I remember uh, Swami Kriyananda saying that when he's contemplating some action, some activity of, of any consequence, at least, he evaluates whether to do it or not to do it according to how he feels it will affect his inner peace. And if he feels it would affect his inner peace to do it, he won't do it. And what he's doing is he's trying to keep an open channel for God's grace to come to him. Because God's, pace, God's grace is not going to come in a peaceless, chaotic, traumatic uh, consciousness. It's going to be not going to be able to come. It's going to come through an open channel. And he had a couple of rules of rules of living, simple rules, simple seeming like ego-oriented rules. One of them was that he would never pray for himself. He absolutely refused to pray for himself. 
And he didn't say that this is what everyone should do. In fact, he specifically said, said that. I'm not saying that all of you should do this. But he did that. He would never pray for himself. His, his whole attitude was, my body is divine mother's problem. Because the more he look, would look after it, the more careful he would be about it, the more attached he would be about it, the more it would be ego identification. And he simply refused to do it. And his body paid a price because it's not like he just said, okay, my body is God's problem, but I'll just lie down and take it easy. He was a warrior, constantly putting out more energy than most of us care to think about. To, but he, he wore his body down to a nub because it wasn't his problem. It was Divine Mother's problem. He left it totally in her hands. His other rule says, I will never defend myself. Wow. That's a tough one. I will never defend myself. I remember him saying once, because what would I be defending? I'd be defending my ego, the very thing I'm trying to get rid of. I'll never defend myself. And, and those of you who saw him knew that, that even at the end of his life, when he couldn't even walk without assistance, he would move forward in whatever way he could with his chest leading the way, with his heart leading the way. And back in the days when he didn't need assistance, he would have his shoulders drawn back and just heart first into life, absolutely refusing to protect himself. Because again, what would he be protecting? It was so, it was so inspiring because here are a couple of things that, okay, they're not easy to do, but we can at least relate to them. And he, he gave a large number of things like this in a book called Sadhu Beware. Many, many keys to, to let go of the ego, not as a practice of self-mortification, but as a practice of opening up a channel for God's grace to flow in our lives so that we can actually love our enemies, not because we're doing it as a spiritual practice, but because of what we're experiencing, experiencing them as our very own self. And that's a, that's a whole different thing, to actually be experiencing it. Then we take these little steps, whatever little steps we can toward it, Sometimes with just the smallest, smallest request for God to flow through us. God, help me open up to this person. Help me open up to this circumstance. Help me not push it away, but invite it. Like that whisper from eternity of Paramahansa Yogananda, he was inviting 
these difficulties into our lives, welcoming them into our lives. Because if we do it consciously, if we do it intentionally, we can put a lot more energy into it. There isn't a part of us that's intellectually accepting it, but viscerally pushing it away. Not an easy practice. Not an easy practice. So one of my favorite stories of someone inviting in, this, in, the, in the presence of a very difficult circumstance, inviting God in, uh, is a very simple little vignette from the life of uh, Corrie Ten Boom. She, was, uh, uh, she lived in Holland during the Second World War. Her family was a Christian family, and they were engaged in the highly illegal practice of sheltering Jews from the Nazis. And they succeeded for quite some time, but like so many others who were sheltering Jews from the Nazis, they were discovered and put in concentration camps. And uh, she spent a good deal of time in concentration camp, uh, along with her sister, for as long as her sister survived. Her sister did not make it to the end of the war. But after the war was over, she, they, they were very, very strong Christians, and they had practiced diligently their faith in the concentration camp. And after the war was over, Corey uh, traveled around the world uh, speaking of faith in God, faith in Jesus. And one time, she was speaking to a group of people, and she saw in the back of the room one of the guards from the concentration camp. And of course, what would that do to you? I mean, here's the most horrible experience, probably more horrible than any of us can imagine. And there she is, seeing him, who is sort of a symbol of all that. And she, here she was, talking about God's forgiveness how God would forgive anyone for anything. After the talk, a number, many people would come up to her just to greet her, to shake her hand. And at one point, she saw in the line of people she was waiting for, that's right, the former guard from the concentration camp coming toward her, minute by minute, getting nearer, he was going to want to shake her hand. And he finally came to her, finally got to her, and he said, I'm so happy that, that God will forgive me for what I've done. I just thank you, thank you so much. And then he, then he said, can you forgive me? And. Uh, Corey was quite sure she could not. Totally understandable. But she had the faith. She had the, the connection to say, think inside, no, I can't forgive him, but Jesus, you can forgive him through me. And she grasped his hand.
And she said she felt a power, a love, moving through her into this man, a, a, a forgiveness. And the man felt it, too. There she was in this, in this, something the ego cannot possibly do. But we don't have to worry about what the ego can or cannot do. All we have to think about is what God can do. What God can do through us if we will just open up, if we will just not be passively open, invite. Not just politely invite, lovingly demand. God, you need to come into this circumstance. You need to come through me into this circumstance. Help lift me out of thinking that this is all about the little me. Help me to know that it's all about the big you and that that big you is also my reality. May we all feel that more and more in our lives. God bless you. Come here while I sing you of emerald tales of valleys and meadows so fair that all who have seen them have carried away memories in their hearts, friends, like the lilacs of May. Oh, my song is the story of the lilacs of May. My song is the story of deer on the hill, of larks that soar seeking the sun, of nightingales lifting the curtain of night, as with music they bring down heaven's blessing of light. My song is the story of God's blessing of light. Come join me in singing of the emerald isle, of flowers that like jewels besprinkle the lea, of waterfalls eager to embrace the white sea as we with our maker united would be as we with our maker reunited would be come here while i sing you of emerald hills, of valleys 
pleasant meadows so fair that all who have seen them have carried away memories in their hearts, friends, like the lilacs of May. Oh, my song is the story of the lilacs of May.